Hi, and welcome to season five of Business Book Talk. Hope you're going to enjoy this new season. I'm really excited about it. I'm sure you will really enjoy some of the books that we have planned. So let's get on with the show. Hey, everybody, it's Bob here, and I've got Not Knowing the Art of Turning Uncertainty into Opportunity, and I've got Stephen D'Souza with me today. There is a co author, Deanna Renna, and let's just chat a little bit about that at the beginning. Um, it was very much um, a collaboration, but um, this was um, the book came, the idea came <clears throat> to, to me in 2011, and I was walking in, in London, and I had um, was thinking I wanted to write a new book. And I'd written two books previously, and I was struggling with what do I write about? And, and as you know, how important a topic is and the idea. And then it came to me, the fact is I don't know what to write about. And it was this not knowing, which was a familiar theme in my life. I struggled to know. And um, so for me, that I took that um, insight about not knowing and I said, it's not the same as uncertainty. So, for example, uncertainty is a feeling you can get in response to the unknown. But children, they don't feel, for example, uncertain at Christmas about their presence. They feel curious, they feel excited, they feel wondrous. So I started to be curious about the topic of not knowing and what that means in distinction from uncertainty or any other responses to the unknown, such as fear, anger, excitement, etc., and um, started to think about my own life story and my own um, reactions to, to not knowing and um, beginning to write them, but making absolutely um, little progress. And I was in a class, and this is coming to answer your question, I studied in the US at the Kennedy School of Government, and it was a class looking at leadership. And there was one person in the class, whenever somebody, the professor asked a question, she would always respond with um, a really critical, really insightful comment that made us think about the topic in a, in a new way. So actually that was my co-author, Deanna, and I approached her at the end of the class and I said, look, I'm thinking of doing a book. It's on not knowing. I'm struggling with actually making any progress on this particular project. Will you write it with me? And um, from there came a really powerful collaboration um, where on both different sides of the world, Deanna's in Australia, I'm in London, I'm single. She's a mother of two children. She has an experience as a refugee. Um, my parents immigrated to Britain from um, from Goa in India and Africa. So it's a very, um, I think, um, a very important, very um, uh, fruitful and exciting collaboration. And that, I hope, is reflected in the book as we both um, tell our own stories and our own life stories to augment and illustrate the, the points we make. You know, that's fascinating because that's one thing I think that constantly uh, makes it much, much more difficult to do businesses. And it seems so obvious when you, you know, you've got a book like this is not knowing it, it. It's you really literally have. I don't know what to do next. And there's no energy to move forward. There's no vision. There's nothing like that. Do you think uh, not knowing and and for use of a better word, not knowing, uh, what to do next is a paralyzing situation? Yes, um, there, there are many different responses people have. We describe it as being groundless, feeling that there's no ground um, beneath you. There's a sense of groundlessness. Well, how we come to this is we describe it, you stand in your expertise. Let's say you're in your career and you're in a role that you know. And at some point you realize that you come to an edge 
and we use the metaphor of uh, edges, so not just one edge. And this is when you're unsure, for example, should I leave my job? Should I launch a new product? Should I diversify in a particular area? And then you're no longer in this surety. Your feet are no longer on stable ground. And we describe this place, we use a metaphor of um, called Finisterre, which is on the west coast of Portugal. And it was a place that in medieval times, they literally thought Finisterre in Latin means end of the world. They literally thought if you go beyond the coast, people didn't return. And there in the unknown were dragons and lions. And so literally, um, it was a terrifying place, not just um, a place that you're mildly curious. So people can feel paralyzed. We looked at various reactions that you people have at the edge. So, for example, one might be a rush to action. If they feel a bit at the edge, they rush to take any action within a few seconds. Some people might do analysis, uh, paralysis by analysis. They might call meetings, try to gather facts. But by then, the situation has moved on. Some people might try to assert more control, for example, or others might become, um, they might have thoughts that are catastrophic. They might see the worst possible outcome if they leave their job, start a business, it will be the end of, they'll never be employed again, etc. So we looked at various reactions to the edge and also recognising the somatic reactions. It's not just in the head, but in the body. And the point here is how can we become aware that we're at the edge personally and have more choice around how we can move forward rather than just stay at the edge. But we do believe it's a fruitful place and we call that space at the edge, the, the not knowing space. And it's really the space between letting go and before letting come, the space in between. And it's a productive space. So that's a partial answer to your question. And like to reframe this darkness or this terrifyingness as a place that can illuminate and can lead to creativity and new ideas. So the cover of the book that you're looking at is actually darkness shining in light. And it's from beyond. He said, darkness illuminates. So you can see the darkness makes visible the, the cover title letters of the book. And often we tend to privilege the light. So we tend to say it's okay when you're in the light and we say someone's in the dark, it's negative. But in our experience, when we've looked at the stories in the book, change and transformation happens in the dark. It happens in the unseen, in the hidden. So in the womb where the, babe, the fetus grows or in the earth where the seed uh, matures. So it's um, this darkness period and things that we feel terrified and nothing's happening and things are not visible. That might be the most um, important and important place for change. You know, I, I've done some major changes in my life and, and uh, one of them was you know, moving to Tokyo. And I basically said, you know what, I'm moving to Tokyo. I sold everything I owned. I bought my portfolio, my camera equipment, and I flew to Tokyo. So it, it did make a huge, huge difference just jumping into the unknown. And it was very liberating. Uh, it gave me the excuse to get rid of all my junk. And you don't realize how much junk you have until you decide to uh, basically move. Um, and then when I got in Tokyo, got to Tokyo, it was the I got into survival mode and, and running into old friends and and uh, connecting and trying to get work and all those type of things. But really, that moment from deciding that I was going to do it, um, I totally got cut off from the reality of everybody else around me. Everybody's saying, well, why are you going to Tokyo? Why would you do this? Why would you do that? Do you think part of... Uh, 
doing this technique where you you basically say I'm going for it, I'm jumping in, and it's okay that I'm going into it. And I get dark as a negative thing, like you said, but dark as an um, an opportunity to move forward with your life or your business. Do you think that people that are doing that uh, are outside of the norm in the sense that people don't relate to them? Um, I think um, it can be perceived as um, people are more worried for you and um, worried for your security um, in taking some of these decisions. So I, I can see how you might be thought of as an outsider to take risk. And one of the, so we have four principles in the book is how do you go into the unknown? And one of them is leap into the dark. And by this, we don't mean just to take a drastic step always, but it means to take action and it means to um, to actually step. So you're probably familiar with their Polinaire quote, to come to the edge, he said. They said, we are afraid, come to the edge. They came, he pushed them and they flew. So sometimes what we we find that thinking too much about something might be a, a negative um, and common reaction at the edge and taking, exploring, experimenting, taking meaningful risks, embracing mistakes and might be a way that we can overcome that. But yes, um, I, I do agree with you, Bob. People who do things that are different might be perceived as um, why are they you know, taking that risk, leaving a secure job, for example. And um, framing it in in the context of being alive, and um, you know, I think there's a beautiful quote by Agnes de Mille talking about aliveness and the artist, and not necessarily um, finding security outside of yourself, but inside of yourself. And we tend to reflect on this in the book, looking at how do you reframe your sense of what it is to take risk, and what it is to what it, what failure is to you. You know, earlier on you mentioned. Uh you become much more productive in this zone. Um, why is that? I think because it's a place that's free from constraint and free from the artificial limits of um, knowledge or given received wisdom. So we talk about um, several cases, for example, one chef from a very large global um, search engine in the US and he made he was also a chef and um, he made a beautiful recipe but by mistake and <laughs> so he was freed from constraints and even though he tried to recreate it he couldn't it took him about over a year to recreate it so there's something a secret source that came as a result of being free from constraints and actually when he did recreate it, it was a powerful um, recipe that um, made again delighted many customers etc or an engineering company would give the example of Energeticos in Colombia. Um, the general manager there um, ripped up the rule books, literally. He allowed his staff to set their own salaries. He um, didn't, didn't enforce learning, but he, he discovered that the staff would meet in the morning and they would teach themselves, almost like a little school. Um, he let them decide their own redundancies. Um, very, so it was a movement from control to trust. But the creativity that um, came in the organisation was phenomenal, and the revenue growth from something like four, I think, four six million to fifty three million dollars revenue per annum was significant. So it's like a um, when we're freed from the constraints or the way things were always done, I think we have more possibility, and we can look at it, look at ideas in a much more fresh and innovative way. You know, that's in, it's interesting because you know there's two types of ways of utilizing this this system if you're an owner uh the ability to uh 
put everybody out on the edge and say, okay, let's make this work because if we don't, we're not going to have a job tomorrow because we've just got to fix the problems here. And the other one is when you're doing it personally and trying to evolve yourself and move yourself forward. Um, Do you think that's fundamentally a different um, experience or or generally the same? Um, Very different. So I think um, anyone in a leadership or managerial um, position has expectations placed on them and their expectations to provide order, to provide direction, and to provide protection. And these expectations on leaders can be paralyzing. It's really difficult for them to say, I don't know, and to admit that they don't know, and they're learner leaders rather than the leaders who are heroic leaders and can guide. So, And this differs by culture as well, Bob. So you know, in Spain, it's much more difficult for a manager to say, I don't know, than it is, for example, in the UK, which might be more US-based or Finland, where there's more tolerance for ambiguity and less hierarchy. But So there's a cultural um, element to that too. But the, the main concept behind this is that um, leaders are expected to provide knowing and um, their staff look, look to them for that. So a leader that says to their people, I just want you to take, take a risk and to... They might not be believed or they might not, the staff might say that's good verbally, that as soon as I take a risk, you're going to punish me. So how is the, the culture set up to, um, to reinforce that? Does the leader do that? And how does he pace it or she pace it? So they're not just throwing people into the unknown, but they're gradually giving more and more freedom so that that person can experiment or their teams can try something new. Um, so it's not a question of removing all the boundaries, but putting just enough that allows an experiment to take place and um, new learning to take place rather than crushing with uh, micromanagement or too much um, too much um, direction. Yeah, it's interesting because uh, the concept of uh, error or mistake has been a, a real uh, paralyzer in a lot of organizations where basically people aren't, they're doing their job, but they're not doing anything beyond that. They're not experimenting, they're not pushing it, they're not trying anything new because they know they'll, they'll basically... Uh, get punished for doing it. So they say, okay, well, then I'm not going to do this. That's a fundamental problem with a lot of large or even small organizations not being able to take, uh, you know, as a, as a manager or a leader of the organization, not be able to move that organization forward with any uh, efficiency because everybody is so demoralized about it. So what do you think is the best way to approach it? Is going to a small group, to a, a small team within the organization, use that team as, as basically a test bed to make sure it works, and then try and slowly integrate it into an organization? Or should you kind of do a little bit like the philosophy of the book and say, you know what, guys, as of today, boom, this is what we're doing, and, and just throw everybody uh, or push everybody into the dark zone? Yeah, I think it's a combination of the former, which is, you know, create spaces that people can experiment, encourage individual experiment. And you talked about the skunk works or individual teams allowed that liberty and protection um, for experimenting with the budget to do so. Um, but other approaches we've seen in the book are managers who set the example. So, for example, um, the leader, senior leader proposed a change and his whole management team said that could not possibly work. So his response was, let's try it for 90 days. If it doesn't work, we can go back as an organization to how it was before. We have nothing to lose. So they tried it for 90 days. So he would introduce 
um, group-wide changes, but for a temporary basis to try. But I think the the key thing here is that leaders need to follow through, so they can't just start something and then stop if it's not um, working. So it's that follow through and that learning um, from what from the action and course correction. I think that would be important. And you go back to the the element of um, safety. Is the culture or the leadership shadow um, one that encourages people to experiment and to try new things, or is it very much, as you said, people are rewarded for just doing their job, or they're penalised heavily for going outside of the bounds of their job description or their their remit? So I think um, these are all factors. You see some companies encourage serendipity and encourage innovation. They might do that by using physical space. They might do that by cross-functional teams, or they might even do that by going to new areas. So, for example, I met a small business owner of an SME. He owned 20 garden centres, but I met him at the Wired conference. And I was saying, why do you go to a technology conference about data? He says, I try to go to a new conference once a year on a topic completely outside of my business. And from that, he looks at building parallels and learning to his own company and to manage his own staff. So and many varied ways to do that, Bob. So I think it's a, a combination of, of, of the initial parameters you described. You know, it seems to me that being in the, the this zone is a way more creative space to be in where because there are you really you're kind of floundering around a little bit so all the rules have changed or there are no rules that particular time it, it really enables you to do anything you want and I'm nice I'm not saying that everybody goes crazy but really as a as a team of maybe five or six people getting together and say okay what can we do if there's infinite possibilities there's really no mistakes and that is to me where the power of this uh, technique comes into play yeah, I think that's a beautiful metaphor that you've given. And I'll build on that by the metaphor of the trapeze. So one of the activities I did was in the book I talk about it is face my own fear of heights. And um, I looked at doing a, a flying trapeze jump. So I climbed a 40-foot pole. And um, I remember going and leading over to the point of no return and then actually swinging. And then at the very top, when there's the least gravity, hooking my legs over, tucking my knees over, and then falling backwards and letting go of my hands, so flying backwards through the air. And it was at that point of the very top where there's least gravity that there's most control. So you find gymnasts in the air, they have a range of movement that isn't possible on the ground. The same with synchronized swimmers or divers. or And that's the, the point of this space in between. It gives us the most flexibility, which we do not have when things are stable and ground. So... This point of change, it can be disorientating, it can be disabilitating, we can react to it in different ways, and it can also be a place of creativity and a place of trying new things and discovering new possibilities that weren't possible when we were grounded and we were um, fully invested in, in a fixed way of being. You know, the, the more we talk about this, the more I go back to what you mentioned very, very earlier, which is trust. It's almost like building the trust that, Let's do a small version of this and say, oh, that wasn't so bad, and then do a slightly more and slightly more and kind of work up from, like you're saying, being scared of heights, start with a chair, then go into a stepladder, and eventually you're on a trapeze 40, 50 yes. feet in the air. It's not that your book's saying, oh, you have to start at the trapeze no. because that then you kind of got the things like, well, 
that's too much of a jump. That's too much of a leap. So now I don't have to do it. It, it, it actually gives the person an excuse to not move forward. With this technique, uh, I'm seeing that it's to move move forward in smaller increments, but but more consistently towards uh, a, a larger goal or a larger achievement. Yes, I think that's right. I, I think people enter it in different ways. Some people might need to take a leap. That's the way they learn and the way they do new things. I, you know, in the metaphor again of a swimming pool, you enter the pool, some people walk around it, some people dip their toes, some people say, I'm never going to get into it, so they have to dive into it. Some people lower gently. So it's um, many ways to enter into into that new space. But what's our habitual way and what's the way that will work for us? And one of the things we do is, in the book, we stress the importance of support. Um, the idea that you have allies and people there to encourage you. And nobody goes into the unknown in, in, in a powerful way alone without their support. So we use a lot of the myths from the Greek um, myths where they talk about descent into the unknown or the underworld in this particular case but in every case they have somebody there at the surface or somebody there with a rope or somebody there to support them and to call them back and to remind them and to bring them back to the known and to the the vital role that allies or mentors or support family friends can give as you journey into the into the unknown and that's not just external support that's also your internal support so being more compassionate to yourself when you're going through a phase of unknown rather than expecting. It's not the time for privation or the time for sacrifices or the time to be more compassionate as you're doing something like that. That's very new. So we look at the idea of support as you also take that step, that leap, as you, as you mentioned. Do you think that it's possible to use these techniques um, if you don't have a support system or a team and try and just do it all by yourself? Yeah, I think it depends on what the changes that you're trying to do. But um, I think it's a combination of self-support and um, also reaching out for support from others as appropriate. Why do you think this book's important now uh, for businesses to get into? I think um, it's important because we tended to overemphasize in the business world uncertainty. And it was all about managing uncertainty. And it was reframing uh, really the whole concept of the unknown being much more richer than just about managing the feeling of uncertainty, but that it's actually a place that if we go to this true space, and I mean it's an interior space that we can also carry, and it's a way of being in the world and holding that space where you're actually coming with that don't-know mind, which is allowing you to make connections more intimately. You'll be familiar with that from the Zen um, background in Japan but it's having that um, intimacy that will allow us to find new solutions to some of the challenges we're facing rather than incremental improvements to um, ways that we've already tried and that are not necessarily working to solve problems so I think it's relevant because it offers a new way of being in the world if we can embrace not knowing not as something negative but as something that recognizes the limits of our knowledge and our expertise prevents hubris and arrogance and allows us to generally be open, flexible and try something new. So I think that's why it's critical. So they're one of the first points we make in, in the in the not knowing part is, you know, beginner's mind or empty your cup, we call it, having that flexibility to look at new solutions. And it's a beautiful quote by Suzuki Zen Roshi it says, In the beginner's mind many possibilities. In the expert's mind there are few. 
So it's recognizing our expertise and the value of that, holding it in one hand, let's say on our right hand, but on the left hand, balancing that with our not knowing. So we're holding both and we're valuing both equally rather than just what we know. Uh, you know, and you've kind of mentioned it uh, again. You've got the four principles. Can we go over those four principles, please? Yes, the first one is called um, empty your cup, which is the beginner's mind, letting go, being able to say, I don't know, and entertaining doubt. You know, um, one of their business um, gurus we interviewed was Charles Handy, um, one of the creators of portfolio working you referred to earlier. And he, you know, he's very much so, so about decent doubt, being able to have decent doubt is one of their, their key leadership capabilities. Second is close your eyes in order to see. And this is paradoxical, but it comes from the artist Gauguin, who said, close your eyes in order to see, is how he paints. And the idea here is we tend to be fascists of the head. We tend to do everything through the eyes. And there's many more multiple senses and to become more alive um, to them and to become alive to more data, to increase our observation and our awareness, to listen deeply and to challenge authority and expertise. Um, living with questions in the spiritual real case. So close your eyes in order to see it. Third was leap into the dark, which we spoke about in this conversation about exploring, bringing together diverse voices rather than just monocultural voices, embracing our mistakes and taking responsibility. And the last was the sense of lightness. We call it delighting in the unknown. We talk about the importance of levity and humour, play, curiosity and compassion and empathy. So this fluidity and actually the unknown being a place of delight for some um, is important too. So we, do, we tend not to be too, this isn't something grave and serious, but this can be something fluid, it can be something light. And we can, um, we can learn from the, the humour and from our children in this respect. You know, I, I was just looking through the contents and it's very cool how you've got the content starting at about 40% grey, uh, 40% black and, and going and as you turn the page, you realize like, oh, hang on, they've done this as a gradation. And uh, when you get to the end, it's it's uh, 100% black. Is that a metaphor of, of how this book actually works, where you're kind of in this gray area, you're not really 100% sure what's going on until at the end of the book, you have a much more solid, clear, defined uh, strategy. Yes, we tried to use um, shades and um, colors and, um, for the book to illustrate that journey from knowing to unknowing. And um, one of the things we thought was important, not just to um, make a book that was uh, full of text, but to use space. And um, you can see the design of the book is very much encouraging the use of space. We used it actually, they're a friend of Diana's husband, um, a designer from Berlin and London called Iconic to help with the design of the book. So we wanted it, we took it away from the publisher, as it were, and did it ourselves with this designer because we really wanted the reader to experience um, beauty as they read and experience space and experience colour. So we spent a lot of time thinking about how do we convey that and how can we give the reader that experience rather than just um, plain text on the, on the book. Yeah, it's actually, it's, it's quite a creative book. I mean, if you go through the book, there there's all these iconic sections. I mean, traditionally, if you look at the edge of a book, it's usually just white. And on this book, it almost looks like a barcode. You have these different types of thick stripes of black on it uh, amongst the, the, the white. Uh, I've actually, I've, 
it's very rare that I've seen a book that actually has this type of edge to it. But then when you open it up and flip through and you run across, uh, you know, it's just not one page. It's like three or four or five pages that are being dedicated uh, to these section breaks. Uh, it's very cleanly done. So, yeah, the guy that came in to design it did an amazing job. They did, and um, we're very grateful to them. So they're very much partners in creating this book, along with the publisher who gave us the liberty and the freedom to do so. So one of the reasons I did my first two books with Pearson, with um, the, the owners of Penguin, but I chose to go with LID because um, they gave me much more freedom um, to Diana and I to work with Ben and to really make a piece of um, art, not just a piece of prose. So that was um, one of our one of our balanced considerations, really, Bob. And you're the expert in marketing, so we, we appreciate your feedback yeah, <laughs> very much on this. Well, you know, I'm I'm curious. Was it a not knowing exercise by jumping into the book like this? You know, we fell into the dangers of knowing, and you know, the first thing we did was try to research everything we could about not knowing. We read academic articles, and Diana started to get headaches, and I started to lose interest. So we fell into the fallacy of, you know, starting with our knowing. And we had to get to a point that we had to say, look, this isn't working. We need to embrace our not knowing <laughs> to actually write effectively about not knowing. So the, the book was a process of actually living what we were writing about in, in many ways and coming to the end of, you know, desperation. Look, we can't write about this um, from our knowledge only, but we need to enter into our unknowing where we're not sure what, where this book will go. Um, a good part of working with Diana was I came to Australia and one of my colleagues says good writing comes from good thinking and literally we would enjoy um, good espressos and coffees and good conversation by the beach talking about our own experiences and our own experience of being stuck of not knowing how we're going to move forward or whether the book is going to be completed in the way that we had intended. So it's uh, very much, uh, as you say, a, a journey for us in terms of becoming aware of our own patterns to to approach tasks from, a, from an expert's point of view and then to be able to let go and to move to our own edges and to truly embrace something new and, uh, and something productive and very different than what either of us could have hoped for has been the result. Well, you know, it's interesting because I, I remember, you know, I, I have a lot of writer friends and a lot of times when we, we sit down and talk about the process of writing or the process of creativity, a lot of it goes down to uh, you do a kind of like a mind dump. It's like, I just throw everything out and it doesn't matter if it's right or wrong. It doesn't matter if it makes any sense. It, it, it doesn't even matter if it's legible if you're writing by hand. It's just getting it out of your system. And then putting it away and then coming back 24 hours later or however long later and then looking at it on a, on a fresh mind, more of an editorial mind. It's like, okay, what's wrong here? Where are the spelling mistakes? Why doesn't the sentence flow? What have I scribbled here? And basically disassembling and reassembling to a form where it, it, it's actually around some rules and then putting it away and then coming back a third time and looking at it as, okay, as a, an editor again, but not a technical editor, but more of a prose editor where you're uh, looking at the piece and say, how can I make this flow? How can I change the language so people can absorb it easier? All those type of things. So those are three totally different headspaces. Did you feel that you went through a process like that? Yes, very much so. I think um, Diana and I both wrote... Um, we had periods of not writing, we had periods of incubation, periods of thinking what we've written is rubbish, 
periods of thinking, ah, this is really beautiful and describes exactly what we were trying to say with this particular metaphor. I gave the metaphor Finisterre. So this idea, so I think we went through all of those cycles, as you're saying, Bob, is very much a journey and a process. Um, as you say, brain dumping ideas, coming back, refining. And so the end product is very different than what we what we initially um, planned. We were very curious. We looked at, um, we kept on, we used um, a tool where we would, Evernote, where we'd make clippings of different things that we discovered or saw or articles or musings or reflections. Um, so there was that whole journey. I think it's a mirror of actually the journey into not knowing the quotes that we start end the introduction on in the, in the beginning of the book. It's from the Spanish poet Antonio Machado. It says, traveller, there is no path. The path is made by walking. And for us, you could reframe that saying, you know, reader, there is no book. The book is made by writing in a way that we created the book as we wrote and as we went along. Um, and that's a similar metaphor for people going into the unknown. There is not necessarily a route, but they're making their route by each step they take or each action they undertake. So that's how to apply that metaphor equally to our own experience of literally writing our way forward and talking our way forward and thinking our way forward um, in the book, Into the Unknown. Hmm. And, you know, it's very, very similar to... Uh, I guess anything in life that that that's into the unknown, that's a very creative zone that you're kind of putting yourself in, regardless if you're doing it quickly or with lots of people around you or whatever. It's it's like you said, it's liberating, but it's almost a purely creative state. Do you think that is the that is the way to, to perceive it? Or and you know when we when you were flying in the air and you had the least amount of gravity to deal with, you were able to do amazing stuff. Do you think that it's a more of a creative state, or creativity is just a, another way of describing uh, that zone? Yeah, I I think it is a creative state, and I think um, the language of creativity can make some people think it's just the province of artists, for example. Yet we tell the story of the entrepreneur who enters that space or the scientist, for example, in analysing data that sees an anomaly and follows that anomaly rather than dis, um, just um, disavowing that anomaly or ignoring that anomaly. So the not knowing space we don't see is um, purely the province of artists or creatives, but it is a creative space that belongs to everybody. And whether you think of yourself as a business person in IT or whether you think of yourself as an adventurer or an explorer or self-employed or a CEO of a multinational. So we don't, um, we, it's creative, but it's not necessarily um, to put that in a box that only some people might say, I'm not creative, therefore I can't access that space. So um, it's a space that's accessible across different types of um um, professions in in the way that we illustrate it in the book, from engineers to chefs to people who teach meditation in jail to um, explorers, etc. So there's a, a range of different CEOs of the Financial Times and the Eurostar. So there's a range of companies, and we try to show that you can reach that space, um, regardless of whether you think of yourself as creative or use that label. Now you've you know you talked about a lot of the stories and there are some tremendous stories in the book. Um, 
do you feel that, you know, when you were chatting with people about this, that they they were different types of people? You know, there were some people that were way more creative. There were more people that were more administrative. There were more people that were more, uh, you do A, B, and then C. You have this tremendous variety of people. But when you sat down and worked with them and they told their stories, when they had their aha moment, was it a crystallization? It's like, oh, this is for me, regardless of the type of person they were. Um, I think it varies. Like, for example, some people systematically generated their not knowing moments. So to give you an example, an entrepreneur might um, take pictures with their phone, their mobile off, um, data around them regarding a question they're reflecting on and then share their insights with colleagues and then come up with some interpretive hunches. But they'd almost system systemized um, their way of going into the unknown and thinking about uh, that space. Um, others might, for example, struggle with their ego. And an example we give is of a paint, uh, painter and he says his ego gets him to the studio every morning and then he has to go to a process of undoing his ego and um, following what is actually happening on the page rather than what he wants to be happen or what he thought he would draw or paint. So various um, ways people access this, and some systematically and some in this aha insight. But I think in every case, they've sort of prepared the ground in terms of using some of these principles we've described and how they get there how somebody empties their cup or how somebody leaps into the dark, how somebody um, lives with and delights them. There are a variety of different ways. So I wouldn't say there's one particular path for people to follow, but there's a variety of ways and you find your own way. But these were some of the, the bigger abstractions that or ways that we thought would describe what they were doing rather than how. And staying on the theme of aha, because I ask this of everybody, for you, you know, you, you've been doing a lot of stuff, you've written several books, you're putting this knowledge together, you're getting it down on paper, paper you're, you're going through it. For you, what was your aha moment where something that you knew already existed but became uh, a reality for you right down to your core? Yeah, it's almost like um, paradoxical. You know, we ha- there's a saying that you teach what you most need to learn or you write about what you struggle with. And um, and then you come to see that you do struggle with it and you do write because you need to learn it. And on the other side, that I've also developed some tolerance and some, not mastery, but some, I would say, some competence in that particular thing. So an example might be I wrote a book on networking because I was asked to write a book on networking. And then in hindsight, I discover, okay, I'm actually good at this. Or I write a book on not knowing, thinking it's because I struggle with not knowing. And it's really like the, the struggle for my own life. And yet I discover through that process or through my journey with it, that's also the, my gift. And I'm able to tolerate um, not knowing and find it productive. So the, the, the insight was that often we think, you know, to start with what our own story is in our creative work or in our, in our business work, and then to seek that our wound, you know, Jung used the idea of our wound being our gift or that our hardship or our struggle is actually where we can add productive value to other people and create new value. So that was the insight for me. It was recognizing that although I'm writing to to teach, I'm writing to learn and recognizing that I have traveled along that path too. 
and holding holding all three of those elements, not just dismissing one one or the other. How do you think somebody should attack this book? I mean, it, it's to me, it seems like it's a book you should read from from cover to cover because it's a process. Uh, do you think that's true? Um, I, I rarely read books cover to cover unless it's a fiction book. So I would um, start with the introduction and then just see where they're drawn to. I think many of the chapters are they're completing themselves, and the many they could just go to a story or a, particularly looking at the contents what interests them. So very rarely do I read a book from the first sentence to the last, unless it's fiction. So it really is a book that they can enjoy. And some of the images might stick out for them, as you said, as powerfully as the as the words. So um, just to explore that book as creatively as they wish, really. Mm, I mean, you know, that's a good point. It's very rare that you have the opportunity to actually flip through the book and stop at all the graphics and take a look at it and contemplate the graphic and say, oh, that's kind of clever, and going through the whole book, and then one will really resonate with you. Maybe that's the chapter you should read. Is that a kind of not-knowing approach to reading a book? Yeah, I imagine it is. I never, you know, you can open your, many people open something and start to read where they open, and that equally might be a serendipitous way to enter into that book. So um, encourage people to use it as they wish, really. Uh, for people who are interested to know more about the book, have read the book, want to know more what's going on, do you have an ongoing blog? Um, we have a website and the um, posts, and the website is notknowingbook.com, and um, people can go there, and through that website they can contact either Diana or myself. I'm living in London, and um, so I'm in Europe, and Diana's in Australia, and um, we're both available to be contacted from that uh, from that website. You've mentioned your other book. One was about um, networking. What was your What was the other book? Um, the first book I wrote about people in Britain from um, minority cultures, from Africa or from Asia or from other countries, and um, it was called Made in Britain. And I wrote it about to help young people that in the media there was a, a, always a cry, there's a lack of positive role models for young, particularly young black boys. And for me, it wasn't the case that there's a lack of positive role models, it's just we hear more stories about, let's say, entertainers or sports people or musicians than, than we do around people who might be architects or might be um, from other managing health service or so the book was telling the stories of people from a diverse range of professions, understanding how they make sense of their identity and their culture, living in their foreign land and um, or coming originally where their parents came from another place. And then how can we think about this for society? So that book was called Made in Britain. It was sponsored free for schools around the country. And it was really my attempt to understand my own identity as well, coming from um, parents had immigrated to Britain in the 70s and also how can I bring some inspiration through the power of storytelling um, to young people and so that was the first book um, For our listening audience, what's one thing that they can do today to move forward uh, in the not knowing realm uh, besides buying the book? I like to just quote my co-author and Diana. She also, you know, we came up with a manifesto, and I can't do all the points, but I think that it's on the website. But one of the points is say I don't know more often. So we're not saying say I don't know in a high stakes situation. 
but it might be when you're tempted to say you know to risk saying I don't know or it depends or so to give more space and more um, to saying I don't know and I think that's a first step that listeners can take into um, embracing the power of not knowing. You know, <laughs> that's fascinating because um, there's so many people out there that are so into giving an answer uh, that a lot of times they're, they're giving false information just because they feel that they have to give an answer if they're asked a question. And I think that's a very liberating thing to be able to say, well, you know what? I'm not sure. I mean, I've got two kids and they're constantly asking me questions I don't know. And I say, you know what? I don't know. So why don't you Google that and let me know what the answer is? <laughs> yes, exactly. So we're talking about not, we're not saying not knowing is about not knowing information. So for example, that could be something that's easily attainable. But we're talking about not knowing in the face of problems which are not simply um, complicated, but that are complex or perhaps even chaotic, where there is no um, easy answers. So that might be because it's a wicked problem or it might be that there's um, more than, you know, there's multiple stakeholders. Or So an example um, often given to distinguish it for, for listeners is um, complicated might be taking apart a Ferrari and putting it back together. It's complicated but it's doable yet complex might be understanding a rainforest there's so many factors and they're always changing with the weather and the climate and the so it's it's way beyond complicated and highly complex parenting as you gave the example of your children is a complex function not a simply only complicated um, variety of factors and influences on children and on the, on the whole system so the not knowing here is recognizing the limits of of knowledge in complex environments where the answer might be not known and frankly it might be unknowable and how could we embrace our not knowing to find new solutions so that's the context I give to go deeper into what not knowing is it's not not knowing information but it's not knowing in relationship to complex and perhaps even chaotic situations yeah it's interesting because if you broke it down that way you know one of the small steps we have to do is, oh, we need more knowledge, so let's study. But that's not the answer. It's just one of the many things we have to do. We have to be more open. We have to look at this. We have to look at that. And then once you get that all together, it's an internal discussion, but as well an external discussion to discover, like, I don't know, you guys don't know, come back together and say, okay, what do we, what more do we know? And let's debate it and see if we can have a creative discovery and aha moment about a solution or discover that, wow, we don't know. A lot of people don't know. Maybe we need to find a person or a system or a company that will help us move away from this problem. Yeah, I think that's right. Starting with the premise that we don't know as much as we think we know. Um, is always a healthy starting point to acknowledge what you do know you know i'm not saying we we take away what we know we hold that we hold it lightly um particularly if it's a complex situation and where we, what we've done in the past isn't bringing us results so that therefore we hold it lightly in that context and then we balance it with our not knowing and that might be rather than facts it might be questions we have around a particular issue it might be listing the questions and our curiosities and the things we're wondering about rather than the things we know or we think we know. And that might lead to new ideas that might spark a, a breakthrough in that particular challenge or that particular problem. So um, that's the practical tip for, for readers, for listeners. Stephen, 
you, uh, it was almost like a poetic discussion with you today. It, it was fantastic. Uh, this book, Not Knowing the Art of Turning Uncertainty into Opportunity, a must read. And uh, if you are lucky enough to find it in the bookstore, just flip through and look at the graphics. That will sell you on the book itself. Um, thanks for being on the show. Um, thank you, Bob. And on behalf of Deanna, um, Elisa and um, Ben for my con, just to thank you for giving us the space to talk about the book. Hey, I hope you enjoyed that show and do me a favor and tweet about it. Follow us on Facebook if you haven't done that already. We really appreciate it. See you next week.